So I, I feel bad for some of you because today I have to begin with math, okay? Basic, basic math, basic math, okay? The shortest distance between two points is? The shortest distance between two points is? Straight line. Oh, oh, if only life worked that way. In 1982, I had the clearest call you can ever get to pastoral ministry. I had a pastor at the time who basically threatened us with reading the Bible. He insinuated that if you didn't read the Bible, you weren't really a Christian and you probably weren't saved and you were probably going to hell. At that time in my life, I was very scared of hell. And so I thought to myself, you need to read the Bible, buddy. So I did, and I asked him where I should start, and he told me, start Matthew, and I got as far as Matthew 6 before God started speaking, and it was the first time of a number of times God has spoken to me, and I just knew it was God, and I was reading the passage about storing up treasure in heaven, and I was like, I want to spend my life doing stuff that matters for eternity, I, and I just had this sense of God saying, yep, I want, you to, I want you to serve. I want you to serve in the church. I want you to be a pastor preacher. And I had, this was confirmed by my community of faith. They let me at age 16 preach my first sermon. It was bad. It was bad. And yet afterward, they came, I didn't have my nickname yet. So Mark, we just believe God's gonna use you greatly as a preacher, as a pastor. We just believe in my grandma Vi, I would go to her house. Mark, I believe God's got something really special for you. I'm not saying you're gonna be Billy Graham, but I'm saying he's gonna use you. And I was like, okay. So I had this sense. And when I got to my senior year of high school, I kind of wigged out. And I was like, I don't know if I could really do this. Did God really say that to me? And, you know, are all these people right? And I don't think they are. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be a music major. Because, you know, call to pastoral ministry, right? You major in music. That's, no. So I was chickening out. That's what I was doing. And my grandpa, John, at the time was saying things to me. I remember he pulled me in and he put his arm around me and he said, Mark, with your ACT score, with your grades, you could do anything you want in life and you're gonna throw your life away by being a pastor? He did, he did say that actually. And I was like, well, so music major, no problem, I got it covered. I'll just, you know, teach music in high school and kind of represent Jesus that way. That'll be cool. And so I lasted a year at Wheaton before God, you know, the stir, consternation of the Holy Spirit. And I'm fine, I'll change my major to Bible. I'll be a Bible major. And then I had professors that were like, whoa, you're smart. You should go on. You need more education. You need to be teaching. And, and so I did. And I went to grad school and I went to more grad school. And I even won a national award, beat out people from Harvard and Yale and all these places. And they were like, you don't be doing pastor stuff. You need to be a college professor. That's what you need to be, Max. And I was like, well, okay, I guess you can't be wrong about that. I think I had this call, but you know, maybe I could be like a pastor professor. You know, I don't know what those look like, but maybe I could try that. And so I applied and took doctoral programs and they were all, you know, oh, you're a shoo-in, no problem. Only I didn't get accepted to a single one. <gasps> Coincidence? I think not. Remember that call I had, <laughs> being a pastor? Okay, so 16 years and two states and three degrees later, the top line, I ended up as a children's pastor. Again, the shortest distance between two points is a 
straight line, only life does not work that way. Life has twists and turns, it does. And, and part of it is that sometimes we lose sight, we lose sight of the way. Sometimes we don't follow directions real well. There are people in this room who at the Oikos meal later could sit down and they could say something like, you know, when I was 16, when I was 20, when I was 27, I knew I shouldn't dot, dot, dot. But I went ahead and did it anyway. They have stories they could tell, okay? And if twists and turns weren't enough, the topography changes. So you're going left and right, and the way life works is you're making these twists and turns as you climb and get on mountaintops, and as you go down into valleys, life has highs and lows. Uh, winning that national award, that was a high. I felt pretty good about myself. Marrying Jenny, that was a high. Ding, I mean, what's Forrest without his Jenny? Okay, I got my Jenny, and I was this great when John Mark was born. Sorry to embarrass you, but like, I was like, whoa, this is awesome, this is amazing. Still feel that way, all right? Valleys, oh, I had, we had a friend. Man, she was such an amazing friend. Only she decided to walk away from her marriage and walk away from God. Oh, broke my heart. When my dad got cancer, I didn't mind the cancer, I didn't mind the dying, I minded the timing part of it, because he and I had gotten really good in our relationship six months before the cancer hit, and they had, mom and dad had just bought a home in Florida. So I was like, really, now? Like, not five years ago or five years from now? Like, now, God? You know, so that was a valley point. Highs and lows, you've been there too. You've been there too. Uh, and for those of you that are older, or for those of you that are younger, right? I wanna talk to you 16-year-olds for a minute, 20-year-olds, I know, there's a part of you and you're thinking, Max, I know there's gonna be mountains. I know there's gonna be valleys. I promise that when I get to the valleys, I'm not gonna do the whole boo-hoo-hoo. You know, I'm gonna, Jesus and I are gonna be tight. I just wanna tell you, I just wanna tell you that when you get, when you, when you get to those valleys, those feelings are really strong <laughs> that you feel like God has abandoned you and where are you and why are you punishing me? I'm just saying they're very intense feelings, okay? All right? What do you do? What do you do when you feel far from God, so far from God that you think he can't ever pull you back? What do you do? I want to suggest to you that God hasn't lost you what do you do when you've lost faith? Again, I wanna to suggest to you that God faithfully pursues unfaithful people. What if it's the case that the valleys in life are the place, not where we're alone, but the place where God can clearly demonstrate that he's passionately pursuing us? What if, right? What if our story has not so much to do with our character, but the character of God, all right? I have a clear bottom line today. Here's what I want you to walk away with. You're never so far off script that God can't bring you back. You're never so far off script that God can't bring you back. Last week, we talked about Abraham. Remember the promise? At age 99, he's still waiting. Okay, I'm gonna have a son. It's gonna happen. I can trust God with this, right? Abraham, just like us, had mountains and valleys. And God's people 
From Abraham on in this book, God has a special people and his special people have mountains and valleys. And I'm here to tell you that in the pages of this book, every single time that God's people are in the valley, do you know what they do? Boo-hoo-hoo-hoo. They complain, they doubt, they sometimes lose their faith and yet God still pursues them and God can still be counted on to keep his promise. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau. Jacob had 12 sons and a daughter, and one of his sons became the prime minister of Egypt. It was great, the whole family relocated down to Egypt. Only time went on and the Egyptians forgot how awesome Joseph was, and 400 years later they find themselves nothing more than chattel slaves of the Egyptians. And do you know what they did? Boo-hoo-hoo! They cried out to God. Where are you? You promised that our ancestor Abraham, that we would have this land and that we would be a blessing to the nations and we're slaves. Where are you? Well, one of those Hebrew slaves was a little boy that was put out onto the water to save his life. Maybe you've heard of him. His name is Moses had a big movie made of his life, several, several, okay? And Moses, when he became a young man, had his eyes opened, realized that his people were being afflicted, and in a moment of passion, he kills a guy, realizes what he's done, and he runs. Miles and miles away from home, he runs and he's hiding. And after 40 years, he encounters a burning bush. And this is from Exodus chapter 6. God said to Moses, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty, but I did not reveal my name, Yahweh, to them, and I reaffirmed my covenant with them. Under its terms, I promised, hear this, I promised to give them the land of Canaan where they were to living as foreigners. You can be sure that I have heard the groans of the people Israel who are now slaves to the Egyptians, and I am well aware of my covenant with them. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression and will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt." I will bring you to the land I swore to give, your, to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as your very own possession. I am the Lord. God is saying, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something because of who I am and what I've promised. And I'm going to use you, Moses. Moses is excited about this opportunity. <laughs> oh, you've read the story or seen the movie. Yeah. Moses is so excited about the opportunity. He's like, I can't talk. I can't do this. I can't do anything. Well, God does it anyway. There are plagues and wonders, and there's the parting of the Red Sea, and they part through, and it's this big, amazing song. I mean, it's it's an amazing song. I'm talking about the movie. (laughs) And they make it, and they're on the other side, and the Egyptians are drowned. And right, you would think, You know, in the words of Dr. King, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, free at last. And 
they're gonna be happy, they're gonna be excited, they're on the mountaintop, it's gonna be wonderful, they're gonna be praising God, it's gonna be nothing but awesome. Exodus chapter 16, this is the awesomeness that's right after that. There too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat. You remember meat, don't you? Steak and chicken and wings. And we and ate bread, all the bread we wanted. But now, now you've brought us into this wilderness to starve us to death. Just like anybody on a mountaintop with God and God's done these amazing things. Isn't there a part of you that you want to go, really? Seriously? I mean, didn't you pay attention to the movie? I mean, this was amazing. This is God. He fulfilled his promises. Seriously? But they're doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden. What's underlying this statement? I can't trust God. I can't trust God to come through for me. I'm going to starve out here. And you and I, we find ourselves in that same boat. When we forget God's goodness and faithfulness, we will lose faith and grumble every single time. Well, things go from bad to worse. While Moses is up on the mountain with God, the Hebrews are down there, and they decide, well, you know, we don't know what's happened to this Moses, so they burn down some gold, and they make it into a calf, and they start worshiping the calf. And I know you're thinking, really? The God who brought you the plagues, the killing the firstborn, the parting of the Red Sea, and you're going to worship this thing? I love this definition of an idol. An idol is anything we put our trust in other than God. Yeah, okay, I've, confession is good for the soul. I have committed the sin of idolatry in my life many, many times. Sometimes it's been a $5,000 bank account. I'm safe and secure. Sometimes, I mean, job, you name it. I put in trust, I put my trust in things other than God in my life. Who gets our focus, attention? Where do we find safety and refuge, comfort and security? Who do we try to please? It kind of can reveal idolatry in our life. And I'm just as guilty as these Israelites, these Hebrews are. Well, God provides food for them every day, and, it's, and, and, and it wasn't enough. Look at Numbers 14. Look, they talk again. Numbers 14. Their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died in Egypt, even here in the wilderness, they complained. Why is the Lord taking us to this country to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it have been better for us to go back to Egypt? And then they plotted amongst themselves, let's choose a new leader. <laughs> that always works. <laughs> okay. So, so guess what? The shortest distance between two points is a? So instead of going straight from Egypt to the promised land, they take the long cut. They wander in the desert for 40 years, walking in circles, learning stuff they needed to learn again and again. There they are, making their trek. Well, they enter the promised land. They have some battles. God does some amazing things. The walls of Jericho come a-tumbling down. And cool things are happening. 
But we read in Judges, when they're in the promised land, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done. So once again, inside the, inside, they're inside the land that God promised. They forget God's goodness and faithfulness. In the book of Judges, it's this endless cycle. It, it repeats itself seven different times. Uh, basically, their sin, they forget God and his goodness. They get oppressed by the Philistines or some other nation. Their crops are getting stolen and burned. Their wives are getting raped. It's bad news. They cry out to God. Oh, God, where are you? Why do you not? You made promises to us. Why have you forsaken us? God sends a deliverer. Boom, everything's awesome. After the awesomeness is around for a few weeks or a year or a few years, they go back. And this repeats itself over the course of 400 years, seven different times. Are you sensing a theme? <laughs> okay. Well, after all of that, they get to the point where they think to themselves, you know what we need? We need a king. We need a king that can get on board Air Force One and show the world Israel is not going to be messed with. And so in 1 Samuel 8, this is what they say to the prophet and to God. As Samuel grew old, Samuel was the prophet of the Lord. Samuel appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Uh, Joel and Abiah, his oldest son, held court in Beersheba. But they were not like their father, and they were greedy for money. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter. Look, you're old, your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Uh, boom. I want you to follow along. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for it is me they are rejecting, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they're giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. So they get a king. The first king they get went crazy. The second king they get made a serious error in royal judgment. The king after that let women and money get the best of them. The king after that incited a rebellion that split Israel into two different countries, 10 tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. And then king after king came. Some of them were good, some of them were bad, some of them were a mix. And during those 200 years, God sent prophets, prophets that would show up onto the scene and say, hey, hey, this is who God is. Hey, this is who you're supposed to be. Hey, hey. And they did to prophets what happens to prophets all the time. I love the way Brian Hall defines prophets. This is what Brian said one day in youth group. Uh, prophet is someone who tells the truth. Do you know if you tell the truth all the time, you're going to get beat up and rejected? Yes. <laughs> In the, words of, uh, in, in the words of the film, we can't handle the truth. We can't. And so they did to the prophets what always happens to the prophets. But these prophets insisted that God would make good on his promises. God would make good on his promises. Despite there being two kingdoms, despite defeat, despite exile, God would do what he promised. 
We all hit these messes and valleys in our lives. Like the kings of Israel, uh, here's a roadmap, right? Here's the whole Bible kind of condensed in one big picture. Like the kings of Israel, we experience sin messes. We do things that we know are wrong and then we pay a price for it. Like the judges of Israel, we sometimes find ourselves navigating relational messes. I don't understand why they're this way. I don't understand why this isn't working. Like the prophets, we find ourselves in the middle of messes that happen because life happens and because we're broken and we have a tendency to break things. Like the people in the desert, we complain and grumble over and over and wonder if God has abandoned us. What are the types of things that you complain about over and over? And what does that say about what you care or worry about? What are the types of things you complain about over and over? And what do people complain or blame God for today? And what makes them think that God has forgotten them? Have you ever been mad at God? I have. You ever felt like God has led you into a mess? I have. You ever been in a valley? Me too. Some of you, I know, you're afraid that God doesn't like you. Some of you are afraid that there's somehow, some way, you are just out of God's reach. You can see God at work in the lives of other people, but you're like, there's no way that could be me. So what do you do when you're in the valley? When you're in the twists and turns of life, and you're complaining, you're grumbling, you're doubting. What do you do when you're in the valley? Can I suggest to you that maybe that's the wrong question? I think the better question is this. What does God do when you're in the valley? Forget about you. If this is the story of God and it's God's story and he's the protagonist, what does God do when you're in the valley? Psalm 23. If John 3.16 is the golden boy verse of the New Testament, Psalm 23 is the golden boy passage of the Old Testament. You heard this at grandma's funeral. I know you did, okay? <laughs> Psalm 23. I want to I just articulate a couple of things that you find in there. The first part of it, even when I walk through the darkest valley, this isn't just any valley, folks. This is the darkest valley. I won't be afraid. Why? Why won't I be afraid? You are close. Where? Beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. And then the kicker, you prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. The worst possible place to be is with your enemies. And yet in the midst of it, God's preparing a feast for you. God's with you, beside you. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely, and here's the kicker, your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. This word right here, some of the older translations have your goodness and mercy will follow me. The word, the Hebrew word there is the word they used for hunting down animals. So what this, what this is saying in Psalm 23 is, your goodness and love will hunt me down. I am not going to escape it. You're going to find me and get me. Your goodness and love. 
It's the wrong question, I think, to ask, what do we do when we're in the valley? It's the better question to ask, what does God do when we're in the valley? What if God's goodness and love is not doled out based on your performance or your behavior? What if God is tenaciously, persistently pursuing you, just like Abraham, just like Moses, just like the Israelites? Again, you're never so far off script that God can't bring you back. Never. Can I pray for you? Father, thank you so much for your goodness and unfailing love. And we confess there are times we don't feel it. And we want to do the whole, where are you? Where have you been? And we will confess that you can be counted on. You're going to do what you promised. So we ask for faith today. We ask for favor today. We ask for eyes to see things as they truly are, not just how we feel. And in all of these things, we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.